Live to tape. We're doing it live. Yeah, this is live. Joe, we're back. Yeah, you know, I think it's um, I think it's cool that we record every two or three months because <laughs> uh, you know you don't want to you don't want to you don't want to put too much of this good stuff out we, there. The world's not ready for it. We've had over in in what is it four years, roughly four years now, a little <laughs> bit extra. We have over 160 episodes. And this is episode 163. It's amazing, which means that it is the, the 164th episode. The, the like the National Security Law podcast is like on episode 85 already, or something like that. Yeah, they're gonna lap us. I mean, they're 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 crazy. They're <laughs> I mean, they're they're recording like five times a week. <laughs> There's so, so much. Well, there's so much to talk about. That's true. I think you know they'll slow down. And I'm when, fundamentally lazy. They'll slow down when there is no more national security to talk about. Okay. And will that be when there's no more security or when there's no more nation? Well, or could it be both? Could be is both. This, is this choose your own adventure? This is a choose your own adventure. Nice. So what are, are we doing now no, that we're that, back that's from our podcast? But it does feel like that. What, what a week! It's Monday. What are we back from our? Uh, now that we're back from our two month hiatus, what are we it's talking about? One week. We were away for one week. Last one we had this. I, we needed to let that episode with Marissa age like a fine wine. Yeah, you got to let that breathe. Yeah, and because it was a good one. It was a live episode. It was she great. was great. It was great fun. conversation. And and there are a whole topic. bunch of you know there 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 may be people who aren't quite back from Such Christmas a great break book. yet. There may the, be people who aren't quite back yet. They, they're like they're still stretching. They're still kind of whatever. Back from what? They're not caught up on all of our episodes. And I know this because I've talked to people who are like, you know, they're going back. They're, you know, they're catching up. Nice. So this, you know, I think a little breather in there gives people a chance to catch up with you. Okay. So, you know, it it is, I think, fitting. Mm. We've been delaying doing this mailbag for a little while because, you know, we've had guests. We've had things to do. Things have been going on. We've been delaying a little bit. Yeah. And we find ourselves back in Oral Argument World Headquarters. Once again, in a in a late afternoon, late afternoon instead with, of a normal midday recording time, with fine local beverages, with with fine local adult beverage. Mm-hmm. These are these are uh, brewed beverages. Okay, from a local brewery. Okay, I think that's an important bit of information to convey. That's what you have, right? You have a brewed beverage. Yeah, I'm actually having as opposed to a distilled beverage. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna shout it out. You are. I'm having the Creature Comforts Cocoa Bunny. Nice, which is a delicious beer. It is delicious for some value of the word delicious. I am drinking Creature Comfort's Reclaimed Rye, their new amber ale, mm-hmm. uh, and enjoying it mightily. This is not a rye ale that's somehow been reclaimed. Like they've taken old beer and kind of like reclaimed wood. They've kind of put it back in a process and, and whammo, you got new beer again. It's not like that. Correct. Is it? I do not, that is correct. I do not think this is like a, a, the, the, the result of a recycling program of yeah. some kind. Uh, would be an Athens thing to do, though, wouldn't but it? But re- reclaimed rye, I do think it's a reference to, if humorously enough, given what you just said, I think it is a reference to some re- uh, some reclaimed uh, lumber yeah. that they used in the facility. Like it's a, in honor of that thing that they did, but I don't... Before we get to our ridiculous takes on the serious yeah, stuff, yeah. reclaim, it, make, it makes me remember, I, I had a buddy that I used to go mountaineering with when I was in graduate school. Nice. And he was the kind of guy... He was the kind of guy who um, he could fix anything and kind of do anything like he and he would get this like wrecked motorcycle and he would like repair it. And wow. then, you know, we'd be we'd be traveling to the Pacific Northwest, you know, long road trips. And he would take this motorcycle and like it would break down and he would use like a shoestring to fix it. Like oh he's God. that kind of guy. And apparently nice. he's still like that. I hear really? I caught up with somebody who, who we who, mutual friend. And who told me, yeah, it's still, it's still kind of hard to, to meet up with him because, you know, when you plan a trip, you can't just count on his, like, taking a plane somewhere or something. you got to leave time in there for him to walk across the country to get where you're going to meet up. Wow. 
apparently he lives mostly off of food scavenged from dumpsters. Interesting. Yeah. So he's MacGyver in that thing yeah. the whole way through. Yeah, this is a whole movement. This kind of, uh, what, do, what do they call it? This is the reclaimed food movement or something. There's a whole movement. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Of like, you know, people who choose to live this way. Okay. Yeah, maybe maybe we should have a show. That sounds like a total Sarah Schindler topic. I, I agree. I think she'd have some a lot of insights. If she, she would have a lot of that. things, to, good things to say about that. I think. I uh, I am not such a person <laughs> uh, in any way. <laughs> no. If there's a reclaimed movement, I am more of the Ritz Carlton movement. <laughs> I think. You you in many ways are kind of the opposite of this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing you both. I yeah, because I you are many things, but you are not spontaneous. Would you say that, Joe? <laughs> I think I am. Uh, I think I am spontaneous in a measured way. I think there is a certain amount of spontaneity right. that. Is so long as you plan for it, you can be spontaneous, right? Good, it, a, a little goes a long way. Uh, I find. Oh, um, it's amazing we get any episodes recorded. Agreed. It's just a. It's a miracle. So today, but here actually, we are. Well, we're recording a little bit later than we planned to because one of the microphones was, of course, in a different room. Actually, it was locked in the car, right. to which I did not have the keys. I had to find the keys. <clears throat> so I, I think people want to hear the story. This is the behind the scenes. That's this right. is the director's this is the commentary. making of. They're, 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 they're fiddling with their phones. They're putting, this is like the VH1 behind the music They're hitting thing. the buttons on the podcast app thinking, how, how, do, how do I get off of the director's commentary? How do I get back to the main? <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what they're doing. Um, Fair enough. Where do we even start? So we got some mailbag to do. We got some tweets to do. do we got is there some any top, tweets. We to got do? some topics. There's, is well, there really a topic? There were some. There were some nice tweets that came in. Let me. Let me just. Let me switch, we, switch the, over to the tweet. You bot. know, the Twitter is uh, is a thing. Um, I don't know how far to go back. No, don't go too far. Well, there's some good ones in here. Boy, there's some good ones. Um, <laughs> Well, we got this. So I don't really uh, th- look at this, the Twitter. This one that just came a, a week ago from listener Brian, shout out, who who he's not going to hear this for a while because he just finished episode 100. Uh-huh. And he says, glad you decided to continue the podcast. You had me worried for a bit. I think we had talked about maybe ending the whole thing at 100. Oh. Like John Syracuse ended yeah. these are, hypercritical. Th- these discussions are largely jests. The, the um, we're going to end it at such and so. Right. There will come a point when this podcast will cease creating new episodes. But yeah. Well, you, boy, that interesting subject you used for that sentence. The podcast, as if it has a mind of its own. Maybe there will be two, like, new people with different names who come in and just carry on. the Because this brand, let's face it, it's too valuable. It's too valuable uh, you make to a die great with point. us. You make a great point. And they could even they could even call themselves Christian and <laughs> they Joe. They could do that. Right? Yeah. And they could even largely have many of the atoms and molecules we currently oh, have. You're going to do a ship of Theseus kind of thing here? Um, sure. Sure. Or the uh, that old the old man's axe. I was thinking that they would talk into their into their um, uh, like um, uh, sub- subliminally you know uh, um, uh, implanted like data device, and they would talk. They would make mouth noises, but out would come our voices. Wow, that's going to happen, right? That's a, or they could do like a Mission Impossible, like they could have a latex mask and a little voice manipulator, a little vocal <laughs> manipulator. Why would they need the mask for a podcast though? It's, it's all going to be virtual reality. Be, it, it's method. You want to get be, completely into the process. You know right? what we should do. So we're not going to. So the be, person who's me is going to have to wear a big fat suit. There are. <laughs> oh jeez. Right, so uh, there are lots of things that we're not going to be first or best at. 
<laughs> right. Like the, the, the size of that list really boggles <laughs> the mind when you really step back and right. think about it. Right. We 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 were, you know, we were early on in the in the certainly in the legal podcast game and certainly in the legal theory podcast game. We're early on, okay? But probably not the best. We do what we can. We do what we can. We do us. We do us better than anyone could, but that's the whole point here cuz you know, pretty soon someone else is going to be able to do us. That's what we're really talking about. Yeah. Do we really want to talk about this topic anyway? I think we need to leapfrog oh. the video podcast stuff or okay. whatever else or whatever kind of interactivity happens. Right. You know, I, uh, I think we need, we need to be the first in the VR podcast space. VR? Mm-hmm. This is where you wear the goggles and you're in the room with us while we're recording. Oh, so we could do – it's like a second life yeah. uh, uh, podcasting mashup. Right. Now, you might oh. think – you might think, you know, that's, that's kind of like uh, – um, uh, you know, it, it, there's too much self-regard in that. Like, who would want to sit here with us and, and, and watch? So you might, you might think that, but that's not why I suggest it. Oh, okay. Why do you suggest it? Because I think you can use your virtual weapons to take out your aggression on us when you hear us saying things that you disagree with or you're frustrated that we keep going on and on about these ridiculous things and just get to the topics. Like, you know, uh, one of our early commenters. So, so basically what you're saying is we should be extras in a first-person shooter <laughs> yeah, game. Yeah, no, 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 no. Like a pugilist kind of thing. I'm thinking like 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 the digital version of like a Nerf baseball bat or something. Oh, okay. Just, you know, a polite little bonk, you dummy kind of bonk. Okay. I'm not, not Nothing too violent. All right. Well, that was um, so. That was a good diversion. Some, let's put some developer time into that. We'll get that get that uh, mm-hmm. spun up. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll start. Uh, let me open Xcode here. <laughs> I'm gonna hit a new file. Let's see. There you go. Do, should I use Swift or Objective C? What do you think, Joe? The, the dealer's choice. This is going to be future proof. I'm going to I'm going to start it in Swift. <laughs> uh, okay. I think enough nonsense. You know, most legal podcasts that have nonsense. I think we're on a whole other level of nonsense. Oh, they do? I think that it's nonsense that people might actually want to listen to that's at least somewhat nominally related to the topic. Like, we'll just keep going. Yeah. This could be two hours long. Fair point. Hmm. Buckle up, folks. (laughs) Do you want to start with the feedback? Oh, yeah, we could do that. Where should we start? I thought you were going to read some tweets. I, I read a tweet. That's enough. Oh, one is enough. I think okay. I think one is enough. We've got. It's we've like the, lots of great it's like tweets. a joke. You have to, but you have to have the French text in front of you. One egg is enough. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> You've seen that pun before, right? Hmm. Uh, so, looking at mailbag. Okay. E- uh, emails. I such. noticed you're holding the phone far from your eyes. Well, I've got to see. I've got to hold it. This is hard because because um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm uh, reaching a certain. Uh, yeah, level we, of decrepitude, let's, but let's, beyond let's avoid that, the health corner, um, steer right clear of the health corner. <laughs> I need to hold it at a place where let's, I can see it past the pop filter because the yeah, pop filter okay. is in the way, and I got my glasses. And content is king, Joe. Let's get to the content. What do we got? <laughs> <laughs> this is a fun one. This I can tell already. This is a fun one. You know what? You may be thinking to yourself, listener, dear listeners, you may be thinking, this is ridiculous. Why do I keep downloading this thing? You know what? You sit know back, why? Sit back. Kick your shoes off, grab a beverage, settle in. That's right. Settle in because this is we're gonna this is gonna be some grade A content coming your way. All right. So there are two short items from mailbag and then two interrelated items that make a giant item oh boy. in mailbag. So, so the the short I'm gonna do the two shorter ones first. <laughs> we need a table of contents slash outline. I'm, for I'm just doing some I'm I doing some road mapping for you. Yeah, road mapping. I love it. So in part one A, I will listener discuss. Andrew. Uh, wrote to us uh, in early February. He he had hit 
uh, episode 55, mm-hmm. so he had listened to 56 episodes. He's one of our many completists who have who have come to the podcast in the last couple of years he, or last year. Yes, yeah. and he's he's doing the back catalog. He's completisting. Mm-hmm. And he wrote us after the episode number 55, Mark, to say that he had been working through the back catalog, and, and he mentions that he had some long, bleak car rides mm. by himself due mm-hmm. to some family circumstances and mm-hmm. that we were providing the soundtrack to those long, bleak car rides, and he was really enjoying it. So That, that was is very, very that's, that's really nice to hear. Yeah, it was very cool because we were stimulating some ideas and that he was thinking about. And he also mentioned specifically, and I bring this up because I think it would be cool uh, both for some things I've heard lately and because it would be cool for a future a uh, guest for me to try to find uh, quote. I spend a lot of time thinking about engineering ethics. He's in an engineering educational program, mm-hmm. uh, getting a degree in engineering. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about engineering ethics, how engineers judge right and wrong in their practice and the ramifications that those decisions have on society writ large. And this reminded me of the recent episode of the Ezra Klein podcast, where he was talking to this uh, app ethicist who had been, I think he was at Google Maybe it was Facebook. This is a brand new field. Um, yeah. And the guy's name is Tristan something. I can't mm-hmm. remember Tristan. Mm-hmm. But Ezra Klein was Tristan. pronouncing it. I love it. No, Ezra <laughs> Klein was pronouncing it Tristan. Really? So th- that guy might pronounce Tristan. Anyway. Okay, okay. But he's got like a TED Talk and he was on this Ezra Klein yeah, um, yeah. episode. And he has his own like thing now. He doesn't work at software companies. He ha- started his own institute or initiative or whatever. And hearing their conversation about the sort of – ethical concerns that app developers and other people uh, who are creating these immersive experiences for people on phones and whatnot, Um, the the, the ethical things that they should be, the ethical quandaries that they should be working through and thinking about as they make design choices is very important. And And so it was interesting to see Andrew mention that in his own context and think, you know, yeah, this is something I'd love to have a guest to come talk to us about it. Um, I'd love to think about how, uh, you know, different conceptions of, of ethical behavior in various professions and including learned professions where there's this disconnect between what the experienced and educated person knows and what many of their clients know. We've talked about this before on the Um, podcast about privacy Right. How do you how does a how does a company that wants to deliver consumer privacy sell that? You know, this is the old kind of Apple right. Facebook divergence. Right. And, and if you can't profit on it, then it's like you're only doing it because it's the right thing to do. And, and um, yeah. Yeah. It, so it's just a, yeah. sort of an interesting cluster of topics there. So um, so welcome. So aboard. he would be called an apthesist. <laughs> uh, he would by someone who could pronounce that. Um, so the other short hard. one, listener Jack, uh, who is a crossover listener from First Mondays. He discovered oh, yeah. us via First Mondays. We love First Mondays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so welcome, Jack. He's starting law school in the fall. He's not in law school now, but he's starting in the fall. So that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And he was reacting to uh, or, or offered some comments about our episode 159, which w- was called, was it magical or magic? I don't remember. I don't remember. What was the topic? I don't even remember. Um, it was so magical that it is completely erased. Yeah. So this brain. was the episode number 159, um, which was few episodes ago in number, but many months ago in recording yeah, time, yeah, yeah. as we've established. Um, this was the one wherein we had conversation about the the Houston, Ohio voter rolls case oh, right. and the and the masterpiece cake shop. If case. I recall, we have another email about this. So yeah, they, so we have the two yeah. uh, emails that together make up a jumbo email from mm-hmm. listener Asher about the about that stuff. Yeah, but Jack wrote about it, uh, and Jack said. 
Jack was sharing some thoughts he had about um, some of the functionality that may result from some of what you were describing as as being frustrating, some of the abstractions, some of the legal categories, some of the more um, stuff that might seem like it's talking around a thing rather right, than talking right, about right, a right, thing. Right, right, right. Which we'll and, get back to when we talk about Asher's email as well. Yeah. Uh, undoubtedly. Yeah. Um, but but uh, so I can just quote here. I have some quotations from the from the Jack email. Do. Um, and he, I think he, he's generally supportive of the idea that there may be benefits to these practices uh, as uh, – and so I just thought that that was interesting because I, I too think there are potential benefits of uh, even along the lines he suggests. So that's why they caught my eye. Even if the – quote, even if the legalese is just a cover for a values-based political judgment, I still think there could be a great deal of value in it. After all, even if it's political judgment and everyone knows that, keeping the discussion contained – to principles, does a great deal to show that it is a highly considered thoughtful value judgment by someone who has been spent significant time thinking over the issue. That same goal could also apply to oral argument, you know, meaning in court, not this podcast, right. by showing very publicly the judges are engaging with both points of view. Together, these form a way of showing that if you lose a court case, I'm paraphrasing and skipping some things here, but together, yeah. these form a way of showing that if you lose a court case, it's because the judge decided against you, not because they didn't hear you at all. To the notion of being heard and trying to find ways to reflect the fact that you genuinely are engaging with somebody in the behaviors that you that you use to resolve their dispute i think is i think there's a lot there are to a couple that. of ideas there and and one is that there is value in even if you consider it misdirection there's value in in, in in reaching resolutions through through the application of principles even if you don't think they're the right principles to resolve the case because Ultimately, it will be at least apparently a principled resolution. And I don't, I'm trying to think of a good like analogy like, you know, that um, – well, you know, sometimes – like if you're having a fight with your spouse or something like that, sometimes it's better to talk about something else for a while, right? Or sometimes it's better like rather than dive right into the heart of the thing. Yeah. Now, that seems like a different point because you made – well, That's one of the points. In that episode 159, you had this you, – you were talking – you used this uh, – a story about you the, you you got to write a will but you decide to play parcheesi instead and the game is yeah. like and that's but, gonna... that, but that's not see that that's an example of 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 a true smokescreen where where the resolution is not according to principle right it's it's only a, it's a, it's an apparently it's a resolution which is apparently according to some principle but it but it's also apparent that the principle has no connection with what's really going on right but right, I, I think he points out something different, right? He's so so something. Yeah, exactly. Like, which is why I didn't think you're the thing you just said about. Well, let um, me finish. Let me finish. So if if you are having an argument with your spouse about something, maybe it's best not to go to the most deeply seated um, antagonisms that you think give you know that that give life to this argument. Sometimes it's better just to address kind of the argument itself or to uh, or things around the boundaries, not because you're trying to avoid anything, but maybe that's the most productive way forward. And maybe, in fact, uh, it's a way, you know, this is maybe the incompletely theorized um, arguments point, but it's also a point about um, uh, about like ways, having some humility about what the issue really is. And, and trying to find a way not to escalate to first principles of a sort that it will be impossible for you to actually resolve right and, a dispute. and it's not just because like you disagree on those first principles and you don't want to surface that disagreement but like you should have a little bit of humility about maybe what those first principles really are and so kind of working inward from 
the surface of a dispute might actually be a better way of going about it. And I could see that. I think that's a subtly different argument than the Parcheesi one. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is that um, uh, that putting – like forcing people to put aside politics or to put aside the language of politics and engage in a discussion at the level of principle, it, it reminds me a little bit of, of Dworkin, which I've just been doing with my legal theory class again. Mm. And, you know, Dworkin's theory is that we – we, we desire to be a community of principle. We desire for principles to establish how we're going to live together, right? And desiring to be a community of principle, the resolution of such disputes has to be a kind of a search for those principles. You know, in, in Dworkin's language, it's, it's an interpretive search for these principles, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think there is something there about like forcing people, forcing judges to use language as a, the language of principle and, and – um, uh, to, to resolve these disputes, even if those principles aren't necessarily what you think are the deepest ones or the ones which are really going on, just to keep them, I don't know, I think there's um, th- there's a certain discipline or exercise in that. Like, for, you know, you might think, oh, well, they're going to, you know, this is the, the standard, like, legalist, um, uh, the standard critique of kind of legalism is that judges can dress up in legal language any political argument and get where, wherever they want to go, right? But maybe that's not completely true in every case. You know, maybe the act of entering into dialogue at the level of principle actually changes results. And, you know, I know lots of lots of people have studied this, including political scientists and others, and I'm not going to get into all the research about that, but I am somewhat skeptical that rhetoric alone um, can, uh, can, can, can kind of get you past, right, the, uh, the working out of disputes that principles do, right? I mean, principles play some role. The fact that you and I have to talk in the register of law for example, if we were judges on a court, might preclude certain results from occurring, which would otherwise occur if we could just talk in terms of base policy. And whether or not it had that effect, I think listener Jack was suggesting, it has an effect on the people who are encountering that from the outside. From the outside, right. And in a way that reassures them, perhaps, about the the fact that even if my perspective as this outside viewer was ultimately rejected, I heard them, I saw them right. engage with the perspective yeah, see, I was bringing. Right. And, now, and, and that would drive the legal realists nuts, right? Because the whole, you know, you think about Holmes and Path of the Law and, uh, and Hale and, and, and Felix Cohen writing. The, the whole purpose of that enterprise was to suggest that what looked like formal argument at the level of principle was in fact, right? What was in fact involved choice? They don't. You know, the crits would say it in fact involves like raw politics and and uh, reproducing paradigms of dominance. But right. but but at least just before you get there, just the realists would say in fact there is choice there, and they're kind of using the smokescreen of of legal sounding principles to uh, to hide that choice. And I don't think he's saying that. I mean, I think no. Yeah. I but but you can you can. Um... Yeah, it doesn't. It it, it m- maybe it's hiding choice. It, I think the details would matter a lot yeah. in, in terms of exactly what was said and how it was said. But mm-hmm. so it could be hiding that, but it could be a way to make the choice a bit more, uh, a bit a bit dispas- a bit more dispassionate. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, I, I think it is important to be able to give reasons for choices that other people could accept. Right. Um, not well, that they must accept that. them. Yeah, you know that I think that. I mean, but I think that's but, exactly but right. that they could, but that they could accept even if they're different from you, um, and that that 
so is that hiding a choice? I don't think so. Um, you could do. You could be hiding choices by talking that way, but I don't think you must be hiding choices by no. talking that way. And, and so yeah. the the um, you know the realist uh, critique of certain actors on certain occasions could be right. Um, but if if it's if it's an insistence that 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 that's all it is and nothing else, I, that seems to me to go way too far. Yes, and and you you know and and you do have. Um, the claim that there is a legal obligation as an actor within a system, right, to adhere to constraints, constraints that come from principles or from text or from something else, right, that this is, this is a matter of kind of institutional ethic, right? And, and so it's not just a matter of like, this is the best way to make people feel that they've been heard, right? It's also maybe have an obligation to talk in this way regardless of the function that it serves, which arises because, you know, like on Raz's authority grounds or something else. Like I, I have, by getting into the system, right, I have agreed that I will do it in this way. And right. even if I had reasons for doing it some other way, uh, I, I'm obligated to act for these other reasons that aren't mine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so the second idea, um, which I actually found a little more perplexing was uh, quote requiring such abstract justification can also serve as a check on the power of the judiciary Um, for example quote what is keeping judicial review out of tax policy is largely that we don't talk about taxes in the same way that we discuss for example he mentioned earlier gun control Um, the difference in language seems to mark acceptable targets for review it's not a perfect system but all in all I think it is more of a feature than a bug so in other words that there are that there's not only legalism in the mouths of judges, there's legalism more generally in the culture. Mm -hmm. And there are some issues where when we talk about them, we tend to, um, many people tend to engage in them with legalistic vocabulary or legalistic conceptions, whereas others, people engage in more of like, look, it's a brute choice. You just, you do the thing you prefer. It's, you know, no, no accounting for taste. You like broccoli. I like vanilla ice cream. It's, it is what it is. It's a a form of public agenda control, public political agenda control. Like the stuff which is talked about legalistically is, is really not up for debate in the same way as gun control, right? No, I think he was, I think he would say the stuff that's talked about, talked about legalistically is, is, um, is de- the, it's being debated in a different way, and that makes that 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 topic amenable to judicial interventions right. in appropriate cases. But, but it's not yes, but it's not up for debate in the public political sense, right? It, it's not on the public political agenda. It's not something like you know whether Section four hundred five B means that you have to. Oh, see, right. this is, I think you're making a different point, right? Which is because. C- so right, he's saying it in a I took him to be saying in a in a positive sense that um, people in the public are talking about it in a way that recognizes that the courts will have a big role to play, and you're saying yeah, courts and not other people, right? Like not it's not going to be a legislative thing. It's because it's being it's put in this language of principle, right? That makes it seem less like a topic for legislation and more like a topic for judicial review. I think that's a separate point an interesting point helping me understand his point better i so i think those two things yeah piece together mm-hmm. but i don't think that's the point he made i think your yours fair. is related to that fair um i just didn't want to attribute something to him that he didn't yeah that he wasn't saying um that's, that's what we do around here <laughs> <laughs> so we finally have arrived 
yeah. at the Asher emails. Now, there are two of these, and they're interrelated, and the second was much shorter. Um, the first was much longer, and he was he also— He did not like that episode. Um, he, this was the, the, right, he was writing us about the same episode, 159, Magic or Magical. When we made the same poor choice to have adult beverages and just kind of spout off about things. That's right. And we were, I'm talking about Houston and, and, and Masterpiece Cake Shop. And, um. I think I learned from sec, from, uh, I was going to say Second Mondays. That's the kind of show this is, Joe. Uh, I think I learned from First Mondays that there actually is some debate because I kept saying Houston, right? And, and I'm not sure that anyone knows how to pronounce Um, it, but go ahead. So he, so there are these two, uh, some, at some point, the world will reveal to me why you insist on engaging in that chicanery with that man's family name. It's not, I don't, it's not funny. Uh, I don't get it. But you want to no, do I, it. I, I so honestly did not know. No, I'm actually reporting to you what I heard. So after our episode, I, I tuned into First Mondays. And and they actually had some. There was some issue about pronouncing. Well, it. I, don't I listened to what First Mondays, and I don't recall that colloquy. But I'll. Okay. But I, right. I will. We, I would say let's roll back the tape. But I'm not. This is going live to tape, so we're not going to actually insert anything. Right. Um, I think his name is John Husted, but maybe it's not. Yeah, maybe. It, yeah, I, I I trust you. <laughs> so, listener Asher. We we had described previously, like when we were talking to. Um, uh, Scott Shapiro and others that he had taken us to the woodshed, which, right, right, which right. the first email does at length. Yeah, the second one not so much. The the shorter one. Um, I think there's just so much in these emails, and I think what I want to so so one thing I did was I actually have I, I went back and I read some of the briefing in the Houston case, oh and I yeah. looked at there, there there does really seem to be one statute which one of the statutes they were talking about. This is section two zero five zero seven of Title fifty two seems to be much more. The core of the case. And remind us, what was going on in this Husted case? What was the main issue? So it's a question of federal – it's implementation of uh, – at the state level of uh, state voter rolls, so state registration. But there are federal statutes involved and so the case involved – questions about the meaning of these federal statutes, what was permissible under them and what wasn't. And I think, again... On what grounds could you basically strike people from the roles and what procedure do you have to go through to do that? Yes, and in particular, the, the, um, the, the, what use can be made of someone's failure to vote by itself. Right. Um, failure to vote in one election, can you, can you just strike them off the rolls because they failed to vote in one election or two elections or three elections? And what inference can you draw from that? What do you have to do before you drop them from the rolls? Yeah, and I think yeah. everyone agrees in the case that although it might have been before these statutes were passed, it might have been uh, routine in some places that that people would be struck from the voter rolls merely by fail, merely from failing to vote. Right. I think everyone agrees that's no longer permissible yeah. a- at all. The statutory text um, is really hard to read otherwise. Yeah, I mean, it, absolutely. The statute clearly precludes striking someone j- for the on- only for the reason that they have failed to vote. And without doing anything else, but right. just sort of looking at that and saying, strike right, them right, from right. the roll. I think everyone agrees that's no longer permissible. Right. Um, both the United States and the state of Ohio and the private parties, I think they would all agree that's been ruled out of bounds. Um, what what they disagree about is a, a different use being made of someone's failure to vote, and that is, can the failure to vote be used as a trigger for the sending of a piece of mail to that person who, if they fail to return that piece of mail, 
is then struck from the voter roll. Now, now the reason that's different is because if that is your procedure, you could say, I am not striking them from the voter roll by reason of their failure to vote. I'm striking them from the voter roll by reason of their failure to return the mail card. And and those are two different things. And indeed, the second of them, striking someone from the voter roll for, for, for failing to return the mail card, is actually expressly set out in the statute as a permissible thing to do. What's unclear is the trigger, right? Does the statute permit... So we've got, I think there are two things that are agreed upon in the case, um, that if sending a mailing that isn't returned, if that process has properly been initiated, it can be a valid reason for taking someone off the voter roll. I think everyone also agrees just striking them from the voter roll for failing to vote simpliciter, right? If that were the only thing that had happened and you strike them from the roll, I think everyone agrees that's not okay. So it's this middle thing, right? And if I recall, and it's been a long time since I've looked at the case, there is a difference when you send a piece of mail that is marked return to sender um, if they've moved. And, and that gives you a stronger inference about their presence in the place. Whereas that came up at oral argument. Yeah. And, and um, I don't see that in the in terms of the, the, the regime that's set out in the statute for doing a mailing that adequately could ground a striking a voter from the role. I don't see that part of it, that it has to be um, non-forwardable. In mm-hmm. fact, I think it I think it says it can be forwarded, but I, I didn't focus on that language. And, and having been spanked as hard as <laughs> I was by Asher in these emails, I, certainly, the, I certainly don't want to run amok. Yeah, the strong argument that the, um, that the voters make is that one could draw no reasonable inference from the failure to return a piece of mail. And so, in fact, if you sent them the piece of mail after they failed to vote and you strike them when they haven't returned it, your reason really can only be failure to vote because it would be irrational to draw an inference from their failure to return a card because cards are failed to, you know, people fail to return cards for all sorts of reasons. I think that is, I, I think that is a, a good summary of one version of the argument made on behalf of the voters. But uh, to get back to the Asher, so, yes. so Asher is critiquing our conversation about Husted partly because of debates about how to read the statute, but he's also making these much broader points, some of which um, I want to talk about because I think they're interesting and go to the difference between, you know, for example, um, you know, Asher, we mentioned he has a blog and we've mm-hmm. mentioned that before. Great and, blog, yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, it, and, and, uh, he's a very good writer. The narrowest grounds blog. Correct. He's a very good writer. He's very clear, um, very methodical, yeah. uh, very thorough. Um, and I mean all of these as compliments uh, genuinely because I think he's uh, has interesting things to say. But there's a big difference between that and what we're doing right now. And I think some of what – some of the critiques he made in his email suggest that – you can't do this effectively, what you and I are doing right now, right. unless you do it in a way that makes it much more like what he's doing. In his, and, and I just don't accept that. I just don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there and and so I want to I want to make some of I want to quote some of the things he said as a way to uh, set up uh, the the comments that I want to make about it. Certainly interested to hear what you have to hear. Is, sure. has, what you have to say as well. Go for it. But I, but I did. I, I printed out just before I get to that. I did. I printed out this section. I went through the. I was looking at some of the briefing, not all of it, 
Um, I listened to the Supreme Court oral argument again. I listened to our wow. episode again. Oh, you did? I have been doing a lot of prepping for this. Oh, my God. And I have. I mean, I could give you a... I'm a, just going to I'm just going to leave and let... I'm going to turn it over to Joe. This nice. is our... This is our this Please is our rebuttal. This is our or sir rebuttal. Please don't, don't leave me alone in this room with that big fly. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, so th- you know, I can I can talk at length about how I would analyze the the pieces of section two zero five zero seven. Yeah, maybe don't do that. And <laughs> and at some point, no, at some point I might um, okay. because it might All be right. relevant. But right. um, but here's the thing: when we had talked last time, I hadn't carefully sat down and parsed the statute. You'll verify for our listeners. I've got these printed pages in front of me. Yeah, you do. There's lots of ink on them where my I was marking up. A, my recollection is I sprung this on you and you didn't even know so we were going to talk about it. I, I think I you'd, listen some, to the, you'd listen to the oral argument. Yeah, I'd yeah. listen to the oral argument. I'd read some press coverage. Um, we talked about it. I think we talked about it in a productive way, in a fruitful way. Okay. Uh, I would even go so far as to say, slightly embarrassingly, a creditable way. I think it is credit. It is. Cr- what we did is something uh, I'm glad we did and that and that we should do. Okay. Right, which is we engaged with it. We were talking about I'm it. I'm glad we to were, hear you say that because I have not listened back and um, We were th- we were thinking through some ideas. There are ideas that are that are are I think both well within the range of of routine professional lawyering, routine professional conceptualizations of legal questions, routine legal conversation. That now now of course just because something is routine doesn't mean it's good. We can all agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But, but I think it was good, uh, and I think it was good in part because it was sincere on both sides and in part because we were engaging with stuff that is part of how law works as an activity. And that is what Asher, I think, articulated crisply in these emails about he I think he ha- just has a different conception about the law properly operating and and I appreciate how, how to talk about it and how to think correct about it. and okay. I appreciated reading it in part because it made it very clear to me um, what a thing that I do not at all think okay. and do not agree with um, because he said it so clearly um, so but first the second email um, he which was less detailed because it was taking it was assuming uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, Familiar, the first one the first yeah. um but so but i want to f- highlight something in it first because it's things we all agree about yeah go go for it and what so, do you got uh so in the second email i'm sorry i'm taking so long no but, no no, um, no no go 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 quote um i believe to an extent in construing statutes in light of purposes i i talk a lot about purposes as our listeners will know yeah yeah, right? yeah. this um, is one this is one branch of statutory interpretation theory yeah, yeah. purposivism i believe to an extent, in construing statutes in light of purposes. I mainly don't accept the premise that this statute is that ambiguous. That surprised me when I read that. Uh, Even if it was ambiguous enough, as Joe points out, to end up at the Supreme Court, which, if you read in Artis from a few weeks ago, that was a case about tolling a state statute of limitations Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. under the supplemental jurisdiction statute in federal court. Um, even if it was ambiguous enough, as Joe points out, to end up in the Supreme Court, which, if you read artists from a few weeks ago, you know doesn't always mean that a statute's that ambiguous or even ambiguous at all. Um, so, uh, so, so he's reporting yeah. partly his sensibility about our conversation comes from his own sense of this statute and its level of unclarity on the points debated in the case. Right? And saying that although he is generally a purposivist, he 
thinks in this case the statute like there's a right answer to the interpretation here. Yes, and interestingly, um, although I wouldn't have known it after the first email, I I now know after the second email, I agree with him that this statute isn't. Um, this statute you, isn't hopelessly yeah. ambiguous. So, so the, the language, it's, it's, it's curious because it is, uh, I just wanted to say what the language is, um, because it, it's almost like that because of sex episode that we had with Anthony Christ. You're, you're quite right that it is. So the, so the, the phrase that winds up being the, the fulcrum of the, of the whole case, mm-hmm. and it's the same phrase, although it appears in a few different locations, is the phrase by reason of. Right. Yeah. So quite literally, it is. You can't remove them from the rolls by reason, and they hear the quote, by reason of failure to vote. Is that what it says? Right. So, well, I'll read you the two yeah, passages. Re- read it, so read the, it, read so it. the um, one passage, um, I'm sorry, I'm gonna, we've got, the, we've <laughs> got is, lighting, we've got reading glasses. Um, yeah. Here we go. Here we go. I'm, I'm covering now. This so is, so the, yeah. first, the first time is... Uh, the spe- specifying instances where it is permissible to remove somebody mm-hmm. okay, from a voter roll. Um, so uh, each state shall, and I'm now I'm in subpart A, and now I'm jumping down to A four, right? So each state shall mm-hmm. conduct a general program that makes a reasonable effort to remove the names of ineligible voters from the official lists of eligible voters by reason of, and then it gives two things: death of the registrant or a change in the residence of the registrant right? in accordance with further subsection. Right. So those so are two bases that it, you can, by reason of either of those bases, you can remove somebody. And, and, and what's more, it seems to be mandatory that you have a program to try to do so. Yeah, sh- shall right. conduct a general right. program that makes a reasonable effort to yeah. remove people. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. ma- so maintaining accurate voter rolls is one of the things that the statute um, wants the states to do, co- commands them to do. A state shall. Right. Um, interestingly, the uh, right above that, uh, it says that each state shall quote, and this is subpart three, provide that the name of a registrant may not be removed from the official list of eligible voters, except at the request of the registrant, as provided by state law by reason of criminal conviction or mental incapacity. Or as provided in subparagraph four, mm-hmm. so so it's trying to say there are some things that are that are uh, okay and some things that are not okay. Yeah, um, and change in residence is one of the things that's okay. Yeah, although it's made subject to procedural regularities mm-hmm. that are really important. Right, that's where the second instance of the phrase "by reason of" appears okay. is in laying out those. Uh, the way that you do a removal by um, on the ground of change of residence in the way that you do that properly, right? So in subpart B, it says, um, and I'm, and I'm going to skip a little bit of the text here, um, any state program or activity to protect the integrity of the electoral process by ensuring the maintenance of an accurate and current voter registration role so the the topic we were yeah, just yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, maintaining yeah. a good voter roll. I'm with right? you. Um, it, it's it says two really important things. The first thing it says, which I have to say, not that he his emails needed to be comprehensive. His emails didn't need to say anything. He, Asher isn't obliged to send us emails. I love Asher's emails. Yeah, I'm glad he wrote them. He's smart. I like it. 
So all of that is a, but he didn't mention this thing, which is really actually, I think, kind of important. And it didn't come Wait, up enough at oral argument either. Just to be clear, are you saying Asher could have been more comprehensive? <laughs> <laughs> it didn't come up at oral argument either, this which is I thought is interesting. One of his signature qualities, of course, is being very thorough. Indeed. Yeah. So, um, so the first thing it says here in B about about any state program has to comply with certain things, right? Uh, B sub one is shall be uniform, non-discriminatory, and in compliance with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Mm -hmm. So that's a very interesting benchmark laid down on the qualities that any such program must have to be compliant with the statute, right? Yes, you want to maintain clean voter rolls, but that has to be in a context where you're doing that in a way that, I'll say it again, uniform, non-discriminatory, and in compliance with the Voting Rights Act. So there are imp- that's an important qualitative set of principles yeah. that guarantee that your maintenance of the voter rolls is being done in a way that doesn't unfairly you know, target or disadvantage groups. Now, it, Justice it, expresses, Sotomayor, it expresses a well-founded concern. About, it certainly does. Yeah. It certainly comports with history in that regard. And, uh, and Justice Sotomayor did talk about some of these things uh, at oral argument, although I don't recall her pointing to this specific statutory language. But here, the next one is the one where we hit by reason of again. Okay. And this is where the actual dispute is. I think it really is about the next phrase, largely. It is entirely about that, I think. Um, Shall not result in the removal of the name of any person from the official list of voters registered to vote in an election for federal office by reason of the person's failure to vote, Mm -hmm. comma, except that nothing in this paragraph – and this was an amendment added later, which is why it is is worded a little oddly, maybe, you might think. Quote, comma, except that nothing in this paragraph may be construed to prohibit a state from using the procedures described in subsections B – subsections C and D, which are to come later, to remove an individual from the uh, official list of eligible voters if they didn't either notify the registrar or fail to return uh, or hasn't voted. Yeah. So So those procedures are – so, so, the, so one issue is 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 uh, is the procedure that Ohio chose to use here. Is that failure by uh, uh, for for re, you know by reason uh, of yeah, it, failure? I'm sorry, of yeah, I'm sorry. Right, yeah, so yeah, it's, it's a if, removal by reason of the failure. And it's why of the voter this triggering thing is so important, right? Because yeah. if the if the only reason I send a a um, a notice to a subset of the voters. Right. So so one thing that gets bandied about at oral argument is, could you send a notice to all registered voters mm-hmm. and would that comply with the statute? I think it would. I think it would, too. Um, in part because it would be uniform. Yeah. And that is something that helps satisfy the statute, not violate the statute. Right. Now, I'm so, not sure it would, actually. No, I've got to think about that more. But but I uh, but I understand your I accept your argument. But. And it's certain. And if you sent it to all voters, whether they voted or not. If you sent it to all people currently registered, you certainly wouldn't be sending that, it yes, by virtue right, of their having right, failed to vote. Right. Right. There may be so, other problems with that, but I leave that to one side. OK. Yeah. Um, so uh, but if you instead send this notice that needs to get returned only to people who have not voted recently, um, you are – are you not? One might ask, Right. That a, a removal that relates to their failure to return it, assuming that's what took place, won't that be by reason of their failure to well, vote? That's a, why you sent them the right, note. That's so what the debate in the case is all about. Let me, can I right? oversimplify just a minute? So if I over, oversimplify, let me just say this. If we knew in advance that if you sent out something which says, very important, return this, 
and 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 it was something that anybody would care about, and they would return if they paid attention and they did, and they trusted the mailing. You, you're else. about to make an argument about evidentiary value, and I'm making a slightly different point, which is whether or not it's good evidence is analytically distinct from whether or not it's serving as a trigger. No, I, I don't agree with that. Okay, make because, your evidentiary be, be, point. Because because see, this is actually so so you know part of what he criticizes is my. Um, my, my focus on what I thought were the real issues and, and how I was frustrated by it, right? But th- there are two points. One, one, I was very careful to say in the episode that I was not actually criticizing the justices and the lawyers. I, I think I remember doing that because I think the kind of argument they were having is the expected kind of argument. They actually, I think, did a decent job of kind of airing through these things. Right. But my one frustration with that aspect, if you get just you know small bore into the specific statutory interpretation issue, um, is that there wasn't a lot of talk about like uh, about kind of levels of scrutiny you might engage in when you're trying to think about like, because really we're trying to analyze what were their reasons? Like, you know, why did they remove? And anytime you're doing that, you need to look at the evidence that comes in uh, and, and and take that evidence to figure out, well, what does this tell us about what the reasons likely were? And if I'm very trusting, then I'm just basically going to accept the reasons which are advanced and the evidence is going to have to be very strong. So there was no talk about like that, that weighing. But let me so, – but the, the point here that I think is not evidentiary is that if you know in advance that 20 percent – or say 50 percent of the people will not return the card, okay, and that failure to vote, in fact, if, if we knew this, like was not predictive of returning the card because, you know, people – a lot of people move, right? And um, one reason they might not return the card is because they moved. Right, um, but uh, but a lot, but so many more people just don't return the card that the number of people moving is not huge relative to the number of people who don't return the card for other reasons. Right, so if that's the case, then what does that say about the reasons for choosing this procedure and the reason ultimately for striking someone from the rolls? And that's not an evidentiary point. It's a it's instead it's a point about like what the evidence tells us about what the reason really is, right? In, in other words, like if we know that, then I think we have to conclude here that the reason these people were stricken was for the failure to vote, right? I mean, that's why they chose this procedure. They set out to remove people who had failed to vote because they had made some further predictions about how failure to vote relates to things that they were interested in. And, and I think I follow your reasoning there, although it seems to me, and, and maybe on the, on the spectrum of this stuff, I'm, I'm, I am in between the point you occupy and the point Asher occupies. But I think it's possible to analyze this. I don't have a strong view about whether one should analyze this, but I think it's possible to analyze this without engaging in the line of reasoning you just used. That you can think that this statute has put out of bounds using the uh, failure to vote as a trigger for sending a notice letter to, to people. You can think that's been put out of bounds even if you think it's a perfectly innocent inference in other circumstances. Right. You just might you just might reach the conclusion as congressional drafters that this is a thing that you want to that you want to prevent being the basis. And so you write it this way. It's not elegant that you wrote it this way. There are other ways you could write it that would have made this case not occur. Uh, But that's almost always true. You can always envision a statute having been written more clearly either on half of the plaintiff or the defendant. Um, 
it it didn't get written that way. That's part of why we're here. Um, yeah. But 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 I but if you lived in a world, Joe, where ninety five percent of the people who were eligible to vote in a jurisdiction voted, that, so suppose that were our world, that pretty much people voted all the time. Yeah. However, there are people who are like temporarily disabled or have some special exigency and they can't make it at the polls. And so we have a statute like this one, which says, you know what, don't just remove people because they didn't vote because there are that, there's that small group of people who, right. and, and, and they shouldn't have to re-register and everything. So you can imagine a statute like that, even in this world, but um, a state, which then adopted a procedure, Hey, well, if you haven't voted, let me send you a card, right? Let me send you a card just to see if, if you're still there. And in this world, people, Really, they're on top of it, obviously, because they're voting a lot. So they're actually reading their mail. They're returning cards. Like that would be a totally sensible procedure in such a world. The reason and and, and ultimately, if you remove someone because they didn't vote and then they didn't return a card where people in this culture habitually do both. Like, I think in that case, you would say they were not removed because of their failure to vote. Rather, their failure to vote made you say, huh, we should check and see if they've moved because after all, we have a duty to strike people from the roles who have moved, right? Yeah, so I just think it's context matters. It does matter a, a great deal, and in part because the phrase by reason of, which is used in these key moments in the statute, um, and, and the fact that it, as in, in law, we use phrases like that, by reason of or because of, to get decision makers to focus on applying the law in a sensible way, right? right. Um, it's the notion of proximate causation, which the justice has mentioned repeatedly at oral argument in, yeah. and in the, this case. Once you go down that road, that's that's kind of what I was a little frustrated because once you go down that road, I don't think you get anywhere. Well, but where, where you, I don't know. Well, okay, maybe you do, because maybe I think you, you don't. Always the point I'm, I'm yeah. trying to make is that, that when we have a discussion about how far the law should go, which is one way to think about the phrase proximate causation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a policy re- matter. There's a cause of action or a remedy or we're trying, you know, could, could it technically affect to the beginning of time? Maybe based on the way it's been phrased, but, but is that really what we want to do? No. Okay. So <laughs> let's find a way to talk about how to m- apply it somewhere which internal to- Which is why when to, cause is used in law- it's always just trying to piggyback on our like ineffable sense of like what of responsibility. Oftentimes, an unannounced like moral theory of responsibility, right. and it's just piggybacking and finding on ways that. to bring that out into the open, right? So that you can talk about it in, rather than be um, uh, acting on it without realizing all of the complexities of it. I right. think that could be a good idea. So on that bring count, it out in the relating back to the other email, what happened at, in the court was exactly what should happen. People were talking about this ineffable concept, proximate cause, and just airing different views of it and talking about different assumptions and right. and airing the different policies that may – yeah. Well, no, you I were do about think, to read something else. As I said before, I do think having looked at it more closely than I looked at it before but without thinking I did anything wrong by having a conversation <laughs> with you about ha- not yet having looked at it to that degree. Yeah. And we'll get to that in these in, – in the Asher – We're not almost done? No. Oh, oh, no, no, no. I think we we got oh, no. to wind this up. I have something else I want to talk about. Okay. But I'm going to quote okay, you go a passage in one of his emails that I think is get, really crystallizes quite nicely just a difference of view that we have. Perfect. Um, but, but I really do think that it, the most sensible reading – of these statutory provisions is that someone's failure to vote cannot be the trigger for sending them a a notice in the mail to get them to send it back. Can't be. Unless you use the exact procedure in the accept clause. 
No. Um, the, the using, using the exact procedure in the accept clause is the way to get a removal from failure to return the notice to, to be valid at all, right? Mm-hmm. But, that, but that's separate and apart from why you sent the letter in the first place. Right. The why you sent the letter in the first place is what this case is right. yeah, yeah, yeah. factually yeah. focused on, yeah. right? I get you. Um, and I think that this statute rules that out as a reason to send the letter. You, 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 and, and there's a bunch of reasons for that. If I were writing a blog post about it, I would talk mm-hmm. a lot about those reasons. It's hard to do that in an oral medium like we're having right now. Yeah, I just, I, um, yeah. I, but, but I don't agree with you for the reasons that I just gave. In other words, I, I, I actually agree with you here, but I don't agree with you in all possible worlds. Yeah, because I think it ultimately refers to what their reason was, and ultimately the interpretation of the statute has to invoke some sense, of, some some sense of, of judicial economy of trust, like like as tears of scrutiny or like something else, right? Where the fact that they did this triggers a certain kind of analysis, yes. right? Uh, and which is all the stuff Breyer was asking. It shouldn't for. surprise you that I am not prepared to make arguments about all possible worlds. I can barely get out of my front door in the morning. I don't need to try to make arguments about all possible worlds. I'm uh-huh. talking about this world, uh-huh. and I'm talking about what I think this statute accomplished. Attempt no landing. I don't yeah. think it's seaweed and sticks on the beach. Mm-hmm. I think it's an intentional communication to try to accomplish a particular objective in the actual world. And so I think in that context, it rules out of bounds the the language itself, the phrases by reason of, where they are used, what else is in here, about just, why it is right. not permissible to to have the statute says a very important thing we're trying to accomplish is that removal quote shall not result um, that shall not result in the removal of the name. Um, Quote, by reason of the person's failure to vote. Like, that, yeah. is, a, that is a central objective of See, the statute. See, I think it inst- instructs courts to ask, like, what, ultimately, what explains the removal? What could reasonably explain the removal? And Yes, and the reason why that's an incomplete statement, I think, is because it ignores the difference between the moment when you get – the moment when you were looking at a list of the people who failed to return their letter mm-hmm. and the inferences you might draw from that – and the reasons why you decided to send letters to a subset of people in the first place. Yeah. Let's send letters to people who haven't voted recently, right? And those are two very different acts. Even though what you believe about the likelihood a person will return the letter might be the same in both instances, right? So the sending, the being, having it be a trigger for something and having it be the, the result of an analysis done later are two different, raised to me, two different concerns. Um, yeah, I, and so I, I the statute is trying to say – I think it critically depends on the fact that and, – and, and there are two different ways we could talk about this. Like we could say that the statute always means what you say, what you say it means because Congress legislated in this context or we could say that the Congress generally just left a, a principle for the courts to apply which can vary from context to context. But, but, but in a world where 100 percent of the people return cards when they receive them. I think this looks very, very different. Uh, I agree. We agree on that 100%. Yeah. Um, I, and, I, and I would say that I think there are some statutes that, are, that bear much more on their face than the, the directive to courts to try to grapple sensibly with current circumstance, acknowledging that circumstances can change, right? Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and there's a wide spectrum of ways in which to write statutes, all the way from the Sherman Act, which barely says anything at all, to the fair use statute and copyright, which gives you some factors you should think about, 
to this, which seems to be much more granularly written with things yeah. about sending notices and getting them back in certain ways. And so this one's much more detailed than uh, either right. of those other two. And there, and that makes me think Congress is trying to have it be a little bit less discretionary in the facts and circumstances that currently might obtain. Maybe so. Maybe so. I, I, I think they mean to inject a bit of judicial scrutiny. And so my only point here was that, um, one, my the, the large-scale frustration I had, again, with it, uh, that this is all dancing around the fact that this is about, like, fighting over voter rolls, right? Yeah, and, and okay. And so, it. Like, but, but I did not expect the judges or the lawyers to engage with that problem, nor should they. In other words, I agree with the idea that we need to stick to the principles in the statute, right, and make a, a, a legitimate interpretation of the statute. Yeah. I just think that when a, a statute refers to by, by reason of and, we're, and, and it instructs judges to look for reasons, that that invokes the obligation on the judges to establish an economy of trust that will work. Right. And sometimes that's going to be highly deferential. Like, yeah, we're looking for reasons, but and sometimes not. And I think in this case, because of the context, I think it um, uh, maybe when you're confronted with a fact like this, it's a trigger to a slightly higher level of scrutiny. Right. But there was there wasn't a lot of argument, at least that I remember. And it's been a while. There wasn't a lot of argument about like how to work out that um, that kind of calculus of scrutiny. Here. I it agree. Was more there, about interpretation. I agree. There was not in the oral argument a lot of ventilating of that, and it, and it, uh, um, and I and I think I understand even better now than I did before your reference to to um, both why people were asking about the facts in the, in the case that had been developed and why there was a lack of factual information and you found that frustrating. Yes. It's because this is what you just said is exactly why you would be asking to learn more facts about what's actually happening and what people know about what's happening. Right. Because it would go to both what kind of scrutiny you thought was appropriate and when you how pick, you apply and it. when you picked one how yeah. you would apply how you apply right? it yeah um so and that's more clear so i think that's cool so back to asher's uh first email um <laughs> uh a quote i don't and this is where it's getting more into like the kind of conversation we had before yeah. where i hadn't this is a great email don't you love getting emails i do <laughs> awesome. but i hadn't read to yeah. that level of detail we had yeah. the other conversation which i uh think was a good one and I stand behind. Um, I don't, I don't quote, uh, I don't come here for terribly focused readings of the legal materials underlying the cases you happen to discuss. Um, dot, 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 I'm leaving some stuff out. But I do actually feel that at least in a statutory case, if you can't offer that, you have no business espousing a position at all, period. And even if that's a bit overbroad, this, if the statute, um, even if that's a bit overbroad, comma, uh, quotation mark, the statute means ice cream because ice cream is nice, close quotation, is definitely not a position any lawyer has any business espousing. Uh, he indicates that I had espoused that position, which I do oh. not. Which I do not feel. You that disassociate I, yourself from that position. Well, I don't feel that I espoused it, and I and I agree with him. It would be, um, it wouldn't uh, be the best. Statutes lawyer. don't mean whatever you want them to mean, right? Yeah, um, and it wouldn't be great lawyering to act as if they did, right? Um, I quote: "I know that you may feel your comments weren't quite that bad. Indeed, I don't feel they were that bad. Um, that they were anchored." Uh, I'm having trouble reading. I apologize. My That's sight okay. isn't that good. That they were uh, anchored. I'm going to start over. <laughs> Definitely not a position. I know that you may feel your comments weren't quite that bad, that they were anchored to some provision in the statute. But frankly, you really seemed to be simply latching onto that convenient provision as opposed to advancing any kind of an interpretation of it 
or offering any reasons for preferring the interpretations you prefer besides, oh crap, liking the result that they would produce. Um, Now, uh, no. Um, (laughs) But of course he thinks I'll say that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a little weird and I don't know how to get behind that. Um, But, but, you know, it's funny. He, podcasts are not uh, op-eds or blog posts or legal briefs. They don't have to be, uh, I think, for the conversations to be productive for you and me and productive for or, or interesting to listeners. I don't feel like having the conversations we're having with the level of preparation that we have, which varies depending on what we're talking about, and sometimes is more superficial than other times, I would admit that. I don't think that is an evil thing in the world. I don't think it's a, even a bad thing. I don't even think it's a neutral thing. Well, I, I think it accomplishes yeah. some good things. And, and I think we're transparent about the kind of conversation we're having as we're having it. Yeah. I, one thing that I, that I definitely agree with him about, right, is that if you are producing a podcast kind of for the public, for the lawyering public, but also for non-lawyers, and you're discussing a statutory scheme, and you make it sound as though it's inevitable that it means X, when there are excellent arguments that it means Y and Z, and in fact, where you are not very careful in establishing that it means X, that that's a public disservice. It's certainly not what we aim to do on the show, right? I mean, we're aiming to produce a public good. And I don't, uh, and I don't, I don't think it is what we did. What we right. were, we were, we were focusing a lot. We were casual. I will admit we were that casual, we were casual, and yeah. we were focusing yeah. a lot in that conversation on the importance of purposes to the construction of statutes mm-hmm. that are amenable to multiple constructions, which I think is a fair description of many, if not most, of the statutes that the Supreme Court reviews. Yeah. Right? It, it is you. It is often reviewing them because of a circuit split, although not always. Um, and circuit splits are an indication that different people who are very smart, experienced and, very able, and smart yeah. as lawyers and able as lawyers and who have, have heard arguments from able counsel on both sides in an adversary process reached differing conclusions. Um, uh, so, um, you know, uh, <laughs> and in his second email, as he says, he thinks purposes are useful things to think about in construing of statutes, which is simply to say of him and of us that thinking purposes have a role to play is a very mainstream legal point of view. But I would al- I would also say that um, as much as podcasts are a chance maybe slightly more casually to air ideas about statutes and constitutional law and legal principles and legal theories, et cetera, et cetera, but that there is still an obligation there's a, to, to have some fidelity to the actual law, right? And of course. E- even if you're casual. So, um, so, so too um, in, a, in feedback. Like I love getting feedback like this, right? That's highly critical. I think it's great. And, um, and, and no feedback can possibly contain, you know, we all contain multitudes, but nothing contains everything. And and his feedback doesn't contain everything, right? It can't anticipate everything that you're going to say, and, right. and you know, nor, nor does it probably in, in, encapsulate all of his views about things. So I, I'm just grateful that he wrote out uh, a bit of feedback yes. that had a very uh, a narrow critique of the way that we talked about a statute, right? Right. And that had a very detailed analysis of that statute. I, I enjoyed reading it. It's been a long time since I read it, I have to admit. Um, I've got one more quotation okay, from it because this gets – and this is maybe the thing with which I most vigorously disagree. Um, he he says that what he really well, objects hold to. Hold on, let me just say this too. 
let me just say this. It is a, it is, it is a tribute to, the, to um, Asher's um, abilities and, and the interesting things that he conveys to us that we spent so long in the show talking about it, right? Because it's not as though you're talking about it because you're defending – like we wouldn't do this with any – just any old no, criticism, right? No. It's only because this is an interesting critique that gives you ideas right, about – Right. It's very, yeah, it's very yeah, provocative yeah. and helps me understand right. my own thinking better and, and for that I'm grateful. I just don't want people to think this is some kind of reactionary thing to a bit of straight criticism. This is precisely because this is a very interesting idea. Right. Um, So he says that what he really objects to, quote, is saying that how one feels about voting or what Ohio is, quote, really doing is what Husted is, quote, really about. It seems to me that Congress has made a very reticulated judgment about how much it cares about voting and come up with all these rules implementing its degree of caring. This is sort of the point I was making Mm -hmm. earlier. This is a much more detailed statute in its drafting. Um, And that the court's job is to interpret those rules, at most to interpret them with an eye toward realizing the general sensitivity toward voting that Congress appears to have had, but never to substitute its own judgment about how jealously the rules should be protected or its normative judgment about the propriety of what Ohio is really doing. Um, And then a little bit later says, but via one methodology or another, the case is about the meaning of the rules Congress made in pursuit of its normative judgments about voting rights. It's not about a dispute about the importance of voting rights. And Mm. that last bit, right, uh, the the case is about the meaning of the rules Congress made in pursuit of its normative judgments about voting rights. It's not about a dispute about the importance of voting rights. I think he's perfectly right on the first and quite wrong on the second. It can be about both. It's about – it's it's more than – chocolate and peanut butter, <laughs> they, they, they don't just go better together. They are two sides of the same coin, aren't they? Well, right. I, this is – a, th- a, a case can be about many things. Yeah. The the levels of abstraction about uh, that you used to describe it, the levels of, you know, what is the text at stake? What is the purpose at stake? What is the policy at stake? What are the broadest principles at stake? It's actually about all of them it, because it's about human beings who are right. confronted with the case and are trying to decide the case and we think about all those even things. Even if you are an intentionalist or probably even a textualist, it's – it's ultimately going to be about all of those things, right? Because to give meaning to words which are about this subject, you have to understand the subject, right? And and all of these considerations bear on the people who wrote these words. Yeah. So to 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 come to the dispute about what a statute means, um, and and for example, not to notice that it's a statute about the level of import duties or voting rights or, um, uh, you know, product safety for toddlers or whatever, right? The the many different things statutes could be about. It seems to me um, not a good way to ensure that your decisions are as good as they could be, as faithful right. to all the legal materials as they could be, because those topics are different things. I agree they impact with you. people differently. They mean different things to people. They implicate different policy choices. So I think it's when we're having conversations about the, those cases the other day, and again now, um, the fact that it's about voting rights is is critically important. It's not just about the words Congress used, because Congress used those words about voting, right? And so your your priors, he's got them, I've got them, you've got them, everyone's got them, right? And and we have to figure out a way to implement the statute with fidelity uh, without running amok on our priors that aren't related to that. Right. Of course we have to try to do that. Right. And that's a struggle, right? And the struggle continues. To, we, have, <laughs> we, have, we have duties of fidelity really to one another through the agreed upon 
mechanism of coordinating through the statute is the way that I would say it. But yeah, but, and I, but and I, I think don't think you get anywhere on that project yeah, by denying that that it's a, but, that it's about these other topics. Even if you had fidelity to the, some kind of strict meaning at the original moment, you still need to have an understanding of the concept. Um, that the statute addresses. I mean, that's uh, I, I agree, and and but I think that the it, it's valuable to point out um, in a conversation about like, when I say I'm frustrated about like everybody knows this is an element of the culture wars and in voting rights and 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 yet the argument is about this other thing. It's critical to note that um, that there's an element of that that might play into the interpretation of the statute and might be argued legitimately to do so, but one shouldn't take that as saying that. This the debate over statutory text doesn't matter, right? That this is only about like prior. So like because, so right. that's and and, and, and I th- don't think we said anything before that would be mistaken for that. But in an abundance of caution, <laughs> we should disclaim that we can certainly say now <laughs> what we right, right. I'm sure both believe to be the case, as you just put it, right? Yeah. That that we this case which we. <laughs> which we did say before. This case is about statutory construction. That's what the case is about. Um, And it is also about voting Mm -hmm. and how you think about voting and how protected it should or shouldn't be. Um, And it's about that because that's what the statute's about. But I would say, and I actually don't think this, but um, about this, because I think this, the interpretation of the statute, interestingly, addresses this very problem, right? But I think this economies of trust idea is how you would really get at it. But but I think it would be legitimate on a podcast about legal issues, so long as you're careful. And, and the critique here could be that we weren't careful enough if Maybe. we were to take this view. Yeah. Could be. The Supreme Court was arguing about the interpretation of this thing, but that's all garbage. It doesn't matter because the huge political you know, issue here, the meteor, the, the, the elephant in the corner of the room is this other thing, this big political thing, right? And so this is like a sideshow. This doesn't matter as much. Or like they're arguing about a particular thing. It may come out a particular way, but like the argument they're having has nothing to do with the reasons that actual human beings would disagree about uh, about whether to use this or not, right? Yeah. But, I- but we didn't make that. I don't think we... I didn't mean for my frustration when I said I was frustrated to, to say I was frustrated by that, right? But one, but I think that would be a legitimate thing to say on a podcast to the extent that the legal argument is about X, you know. <laughs> but in fact, Y is the important thing. I agree that it right? would be a legitimate thing to say uh, if one said it carefully. Y- yes, and if one were a crit. Which I'm not. No, so no. I think you you, you, we, you sounded to me like you were no, taking the crit point of no, view. No, the crit point would be that the, that that the legal argument about X is not really about X, and X is irrelevant to the outcome. What I'm saying is, to the extent the law directs you to discuss X and X principles, right? But in fact, anybody who was a, who looked at these facts would say, huh, the reason I think it ought to come out this way is for this other reason, why? Mm. And people, the real political argument would be about why. In that case, there's a disconnect between the, what the, the way the law gets us to talk about something and the way that ordinary human beings constituted in today's world would talk about something. Okay. And I think it's a perfectly legitimate thing to say, like on a podcast or it's a bit of legal commentary or an article, that the law's got this wrong. It's not tracking what actual human beings care about. Oh, okay. Right? Very different like, point. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's like these um, special pleading rules that used to be in existence. Like nobody cares about these. Ple- they care about like whether or not there was like sufficient notice to the other party that you were suing based on these grounds, right? And therefore, arguing over whether the pleading was in the right form, that's not what anybody cares about. And that's an example where maybe the, the law, in, 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 in this case procedure, like was disconnected from what actual people would care about if they thought about this issue anew. And that would be a perfectly legitimate critique to make of a law that had a lot of special pleading requirements and everything. That's just an example. 
Yes. Uh, and um, I think when we – because we did say in episode 159, we were using phrases about what something's really about. Yeah. And I, I think so, – so you described the crit – do your crit thing again. Which crit thing? A crit's argument would be they're saying it's about X, but it's really not yeah, about X at it, all. Yeah, the, the the legal argument is over X. You know, it's like was there this fact? Was there that fact? You know, or how do you balance this? But in fact, all that's a smokescreen. It doesn't matter what legal rule you apply. Any judge will get to where they want to go, and in fact, judges represent a certain political point of view, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so that would be that would legal be, rules are irrelevant. To that would outcome. be one argument. Um, I I think neither of us was was. Um, was relying on or purveying that argument in that episode or today. Yeah. Um, I think when we were saying it's really about this and what's the word really doing there, it's an interesting thing to think about this choice of language, mm-hmm. which we made and uh, which I think was a sensible thing to say then and I think still is now. Um, it, 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 it does sound a little bit like the crit argument maybe or could be mistaken for it, which is why I'm rethinking is if it's a phrase. Which is that, what Asher's feedback partly was. Like yeah, the, and, and it's a phrase ice, I want to think about. Point. Do I yeah. want to use that anymore? Um, because, yeah. it could, because it could be open to that misinterpretation. Hmm. But, um, you know, I think it's about both, as I've said, right? I think it's about – it is about the statute and the, and the ways that we interpret statutes. It, it, it is about X. Yeah. But it's also about the reason people care about X. Right. So it's not that I'm not denying it's about the legal stuff they're talking about in the argument because I think it is about that. But I think it's about other things too, which are properly related because they're the animating forces behind X. This is the crittiest point that I'll make about this, right? That the statute is about (laughs) X. It's about, you know, whether it's about failure to vote, right? By reason of failure to vote. Everybody agrees that- And role maintenance and all that. Right. Everybody agrees that X is is what it's about. But- um, how you feel about X and what you think X means is a function of a lot of priors that you might have. That's true. In too. the absence of evidence, right? Which is why I think, you know, That's true establishing, too. like getting out on the table the economies of trust idea and the role of scrutiny and deference would help to surface these priors that we have that otherwise would be expressed in terms expressed in terms of like what the statute quote unquote really means yeah. through other mechanisms. So that's a little bit of a kind of crit point in that like what I say about like language in fact is kind of smuggling in a bunch of stuff I think about how what's going on here like how often do people turn in these cards what's the reason why someone might want to send cards to these people or that people like I have a lot of priors about that and so if I'm just talking about language I'm going to shade it in a way that you know, I, I think we can be a little bit outcome driven in what we think statutes clearly mean mm-hmm. because we have a lot of priors about like what actors who are subject to that language are actually doing. So that, that anyway, that's the crittiest point that, I, but that, yeah. that I'll make. But I think you can avoid all of that by surfacing the underlying thing, right, which is that yeah. when searching for reasons, you have to have some level – you have to have some analysis of trust about like what reasons people are telling you and about how to interpret the evidence that's coming in. You know, the evidence about like why they chose this or how well it works, all of that is going to, you know, needs to factor into whether you think, in fact, this was for this reason or for that reason. But we need some judicial mechanism for doing that unless we're just going to kind of sit back and say we're applying language and we'll kind of talk past each other. Yeah. And um, and I and I think we were both suggesting that we don't simply want to do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is that it? I guess so. Yeah, you so you said that was quite to, the bead in your bonnet. Yeah. 
it was I thought it was a great email and I thought your response yeah. was 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 magnificent and and now I look forward to Asher's you know this is th- to the sequel oral argument colon the woodshed too yes the woodshedning the woodshedning the enshedning <laughs> um yeah I'm just gonna wear Kevlar pants so it hurts less when I'm giving it I, I know you found this fascinating just by the amount of uh, yeah. the, the, the amount that you turned it over and, it's quite and thought true. about it yeah quite true. Um, okay, so do we want to talk about anything else? You said you had something else. Um, I, I was wondering wh- whether we talk about um, whether the um, – there's this issue. You saw that the lieutenant governor of Georgia tweeted the other day. What's his name? Casey Cagle. Yeah. And uh, let me, I should get the language up. Do I have the language in front of me? So this was the – there's a Georgia statute 16-10-2 that you were pointing to, which is a bribery statute. There's a one that I think might also be relevant, which is 16-10-4. Um. Yeah, he says, so on Twitter, uh, the lieutenant governor of Georgia said, I will kill any tax legislation that benefits Delta unless the company changes its position and fully reinstates its relationship with NRA, which reflects uh, certain discounts that the that Delta had been giving to NRA members. And apparently it does this for a number of organizations. Right. Corporations cannot attack conservatives and expect us not to fight back. So now, here's, your here, thought here's was, what I want to say about this. He okay? was soliciting a bribe. Well, I don't want to say oh, – let me just say what I'm not saying first. Okay. okay? Um, I have no idea whether these whether these fuel the, – so apparently this is about like tax cuts yeah. for fuel excise – fuel excise thing. Anyway. Well, get, right. Getting a uh, – writing into the law a, a special tax cut that would have applied to Delta. Yeah. And, and – and presumably other sim- similarly situated airlines, sure, if, sure. if there are any. If there but are like, any, yeah. uh, all right, So I've got no idea whether this is a good idea or not. I don't know whether this is a good policy or not. I, right. you know, I assume, I. frankly, that most, like, probably not. But who knows? Maybe it's a great policy. Maybe it's a bad policy. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, so I don't care whether, you know, which way he exercises his power, if it's based on reasons of public policy, even ones which I would disagree with. The issue that I have is that the tweet instructs a private company to deal with another private company whom he favors and I think is a campaign contributor, but maybe that doesn't matter. But uh, So private company A, treat favorably private company B, or I will use my official power to, uh, to, to um, exact some pain on you, right? right. To prevent um, your getting a benefit. Right. Now, so here's what I don't which know is for sure. Which is imposing a cost. Yeah. Preventing a benefit and imposing a cost are are the same here, I think. So this it, this strikes me as a crime. Now, I don't know whether it is. Um, there, there is a Georgia statute. We can talk about this really briefly. But it seems to me the definition of public corruption, I don't think he meant it that way. So in, in the best of all worlds, I think like we would recognize that actually a crime was committed upon the sending of this tweet. It was not intentional. He was trying to be political, whatever. And maybe be pardoned, or it would never be brought up. But but, but in the in the language of sixteen ten two, he solicited a bribe. Well, that's well. It says uh, a person commits the offense of bribery when a public official, elected, appointed, um, or blah 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 blah, um, uh, um, uh, directly or indirectly solicits, receives, accepts, or agrees to receive a thing of value by inducing the reasonable belief that the giving of the thing will influence his or her performance or failure to perform any official action. So, par- so walk some walk it through what you think. Like, what's I the can tell th- you what it turns on. There's a tricky part. What's the thing of value, and what's who's well, the thing of value are the discounts to the to the NRA members. Okay, right. So I'm saying, give you Delta, give these discounts, or 
I will use my power to prevent you getting this thing you want, which is money right. in your I pocket. I will raise your taxes or I will increase. I mean, he says like I will, any I will any fail kind. to cut your taxes yeah. or which is in, in I will use of, my official power to do something bad. Right. And so the issue is like, does, is, you know, the statutory interpretation issue is whether a solicitation can be for a third party. So what would a classic, ah, okay. So what would a classic public corruption bribery case look like? I think it would be, you know, um, you, you want, you want, um, you want a new uh, sewer line put out to this housing development area that you're thinking of building. Right. And I'm the person who decides where the sewer lines are put in. And I come to you and say, look, I'd be happy to have the sewer line put out there, but, you know, that's valuable to you. Right. Uh, and so I need you to give me some of that value. Right. Uh, and in exchange, I will approve yeah. that thing. Like that would be a standard public corruption kind of story, right? right? Or you want to exp- – or you're a car dealership. You want to expand your, your parking lot or your footprint. I have the discretionary authority – uh, on the zoning commission to grant this or not based on certain things. And so, so if you give me, you give me you give some me money car, in exchange for that, or, I will, car. or give me a car, right. in exchange for that, I will exercise my power, right. which I wouldn't otherwise be right. able to help you with, but I have this official power and I'm going to use it on your behalf in exchange for mm-hmm. this thing that you give me. Right. And this, so this is clearly illegal. I think that falls within the heartland of the statute. Right. The issue is... And, so we can under, and by the way, we can yeah. understand why it's important that it be illegal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Like it, this is a super sensible statute. Right. In fact, the thing I'm writing now, the segregation of markets idea, one of the ways of seeing this, like that this kind of solicitation is both a harm to the political economy, like the way you should be making political decisions, like that market of political decision making is like, you know, totally disruptive when I come in and I start saying things, not because I actually think they're in the interests of my constituents, but because I got a thing of value for them. But it also works the other way, right? To the extent I get favorable treatment within the market, it skews prices and everything else. And if that goes far enough, you end up in one of these like, you know, a banana republic scenario where, you know, uh, government officials have very favorable market treatment, you know, all these problems, right? So, I think the next step, though, is like, what if I say um, I will grant, you know, I will act to try to ensure you get this zoning approval if you give my sister a car? Uh, instead of giving it to you, the public right. official, you instead direct that benefit uh, that you're getting in exchange for your official action. You direct it to someone else. Right. And then you could say, instead of giving it to my sister, give it to my sister's company. Yeah. And so you I, can I, just you go the I steps. I did a very were... brief search on, on, on Google Scholar. So not at all a comprehensive thing. And I could not find a lot of interpretations of this provision of the Georgia Code. Mm. So I found Surely some. Surely there, st- there are many state statutes that talk about that have public corruption bribery statutes. Yeah. Georgia actually, so I did find some information done by kind of good government uh, groups about how Georgia's public corruption statutes are some of the weakest in the nation. <laughs> so we're not doing well on, okay. on that count. Um, so so the, the upshot is I don't know for sure how a court in Georgia would interpret the solicitation here. Like soliciting a thing of value for a third party, is it important that whether they are campaign contributors, is it important whether he has any other connection? Maybe, you know, maybe or maybe not. I, I, I don't know. So I don't know for sure how this would apply. I know how it should apply. This should be a crime, right? It should be a crime to direct private um, companies to give things of value to other private companies on pain of receiving, you know, unfavorable legislative treatment. Like, that's no way to live. That's no way for a republic to live. And, and just to make sure, one last little step here. So so it's not um, – so the thing there – the thing that – the official action that's being done is um, – is forbearing from blocking something in this case it's a rather than doing something but you don't but one wouldn't want 
the outcome of this analysis to turn too much on omission versus well, commission, well, right? Well, the, the statute says, uh, uh, you know, on the belief that the giving of the thing will influence his or her performance or failure to perform any official action. Mm. So I, I think the statute contemplates that situation, right? I'm not going to bring this forward or I will bring this forward. Basically, yeah. it's trying to capture any use of your official action in order to punish someone for not complying. Right. I, now, yeah. being the lieutenant governor, is he really in a – like he doesn't have an official role in – He's not on a committee in the at, legislature. We could look at a possibility here, and I don't know. He's not in a position yeah. to veto or not right. veto I, something. I, I don't even want to, because I'm not sure. I, I just don't know. Do you know for sure? I don't know for sure. These, I, so I guess what I would say is these are questions I would have. Is what, mm-hmm. like if what's the scope of official action? Right. Um, so, so, but, but here, here's the thing, though. What he, was he in a position to deliver what he promised? Because I think the critical thing here is the crime, if it is a crime, was committed at the moment that he tweeted. It has nothing to do with whether he followed through on blocking this thing for, or even the specific tax. Well, qu- quite so it, because of the word solicit. Yes. He says, I will kill any tax legislation that benefits Delta. Now, there's a question of possibility. Was he in a position to do that? Could he do that through an official action? Right. Right. And that's that's the issue. Right. Otherwise, it's just evidence. Like if he's not in a position to do that, but maybe he called somebody or did something else, that's evidence of some kind of conspiracy. Right. But to the extent he is in a position to do this, the crime is committed at the time that he tweeted. Yep. No, on that, we're agreed. If it is that I have again, I have no idea whether it is. It turns on the definition of solicit. And even if it's even if it were like I don't favor because there's a minimum one year jail sentence here. There's a minimum one year prison sentence. So I don't actually favor imprisoning the guy, even if you can interpret it this way. What I do favor is recognizing that you cannot do this sort of thing, right? <laughs> because I think it's just critical that we return to a sense of regular professional order, even when we disagree. So a number of people I've, I've talked to about this, they've said, well, what if it were the other way around? Like, what if it was like someone saying, um, uh, unless you, um, uh, one example someone gave me was like, what, what if what if Delta had a policy of, um, or or, uh, of, uh, or suddenly adopted a policy of turning away transgenders or something else that like would not appeal to liberals. I think that's not the same thing at all. Um, the cl- somewhat closer to the mark are like what if what if Delta stopped supporting like Planned Parenthood or something like that, or if they, if they are supporting them or if they did support them. And I just think it's the same answer, right? I, I just think it's the same. Uh, it's one thing for them uh, uh, to say um, you could pass general legislation, I suppose saying that um, um, the, the state will give you a special discount if you um, – a special tax discount or tax break if you provide resources for people to learn about the joys of firearms. Like the state could subsidize that kind of activity and make sure. it private. So you can do that kind of general thing. The whole point is it needs to be general. And this is – my concern here is that this is a – this is one of the early markers of the Trump-style private citizen call-out tweet things. Did I say that right? I don't know. That's, probably, no. that, that's, a, that's and, a phrase that's probably not going to catch on, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and what's interesting you know is, what I'm talking about. Though, I do. Right? And I saw a news item today, in fact, about um, the, the notion that the, the president might try to um, create exceptions to this new set of tariffs mm-hmm. uh, that, that individual businesses could apply for exceptions – to the coverage of these new tariffs that I are contemplated. Hmm? I haven't heard about this. Yeah. Um, and if I was, so if I was reading the news and now we're off doing, you know, naughty, non-Asher things. But if, if I read this news story correctly, <laughs> it, the notion was that there would, that the tariffs would be in place generally, but that, the, but that exceptions to them could be made. I suppose they'd be, 
made for certain purchasers who were bringing in these objects from outside the country, um, that those wouldn't be taxed uh, with the tariff in the way everything else would be, and that those companies would have to apply for those exemptions. Mm-hmm. So of course you'd be having the the CEOs of those individual companies right trying to make the case to the president because mm-hmm. this is done by him right. personally right because we're using this national security based tariff regime yeah. right um so you you would you would literally be having the CEO of Delta going to the president saying please let us bring in yeah. aluminum for these aircraft or maybe it's Boeing Right. Which, um, and it seems like a bad idea in general <laughs> to do this. I mean, but, yeah. like, but of course, you know, this is not unusual that how you feel about discretion turns a lot on the, on how much you trust the person who's able to like a discretion empower someone to do right. a lot of good things and, or a lot of bad things. And right? it's funny, you know, so much about so I, in so much of law uh, is about is about managing discretion, channeling it, yeah. uh, trying to uh, uh, reduce it. There was a point, or increase it, or or increase it, but but I think more often reduce it. Yeah. Great, um, great depression, but it's um, but it's funny because I, I I was at one point I I remember saying to someone in the context of a, a talk we were seeing about about discretion, it's sort of like, you know, it's kind of this incompressible fluid. It's like if <laughs> you can't get rid of it, you can yeah. you can move it around, but like the net amount of it is always either as much as it is now or more. It's like it never actually gets reduced. So so, uh, so discretion is like Hale's sense of coercion. You can you can move it around between government and private entities and among government and private entities. But you can't really get rid of it. But you can't get rid of it. This is just a fact of living together. Right? Yeah. And a fact of having a government is that sometimes people are going to have to make political decisions. And, and of course, this is, you know, we've talked about this before. In addition, you know, in our conversations in my undergraduate class, right, it's like, you know, there there is this level of argumentation it's in the Supreme Court in particular, which is all about like where do we put the discretion? Yeah, why do we put the discretion there? And and when we put it there, what tools do those people have to work through the kinds of judgments that are right. going to be made in a discretionary fashion? So is it about the fact finding or the applying of a standard and how that standard gets construed? And where do those sound more judicial? Right. Um, but this is a, this is the case where I think the language of public corruption is needed to show yeah. discretion at its worst, right? right? Like this is this is beyond a bad exercise of discretion or even an unconstitutional exercise of discretion because, you know, there's been a lot of writing about whether this violated the First Amendment rights of Delta, which I think is a legitimate and good argument. But like I haven't seen other people jump on the fact that this might have been a crime <laughs> at right. the time that tw- the tweet was And even was if it's not pushed. a crime in Georgia, it's, it's the kind of conduct that – Public corruption statutes are designed to prevent. Right. And, and maybe, maybe frankly, they need refresher courses in the kinds of ways that you can use your power. Right. It's not a, like when you're occupying an office, it's not how you as a conservative can fight back using all available tools. And that's that's the total war sense of this thing. That right. Is out and, of control. And in that and in that respect, it's not the Trumpification. It's the McConnellization. Well, you might say that. Yeah, um, you might say that. And we can imagine, you know, and it's important to um, it's important to disarm from that kind of uh, that that kind of use of power anytime that you can which is why i think frankly i think the the obama administration was a very professional administration like they were you know professionalism and good order were kind of a hallmark of what they did there that's not true of every democratic administration right, right. so and it's not inevitably true of every future democratic or progressive uh, uh, administration so i think you know it's important when you have moments of power 
to use it to kind of rein in and describe what the professional use of power looks like in your given role. Right. Um, which is what, you know, Justice Scalia at his most admirable, right, was was preaching a kind of restraint that maybe went against the grain of his preferences. He's criticized him. We should get Rick Hassan on there. You know, he's got this new great book about Scalia, mm-hmm. the complicated Scalia, right? right. Which is the Scalia that I think of in my mind, this complicated interlocutor, right? But um, but I think that, you know, that there's that idea that a lot of us in law are striving for, right? How do we, not how do we bring politics out of it altogether, but like how do we discipline in a way the, uh, uh, the, this, these desires we have in moments of power, right? And how do we empower others to use them in their best lights, right? Um, it, it, meaning that like uh, um, how do we achieve institutional arrangements that will make the best use of the available power, Right. You know what I mean? So, which is part of this kind of optimistic theory I have, like that if human beings can just get into the right configurations, mm-hmm. they will behave like rationally and with empathy, right? And it's all, and almost any time you find irrationality and a lack of empathy, there's, there's an institutional explanation for it, right? There's a, uh, um, you know, it's the jury that confronts the, the potential defendant typically exercises more empathy than people who are watching uh, uh, reports of the trial or who have only heard about it, right? Because they're seeing the person. Like, there's something critical about that um, about that configuration that increases the amount. Not, not always. And there are ways, you know, we've talked about it on the show. Like there are ways to uh, that we could improve that institutional way. I don't know. I'm, I'm going on and we're, we're running late. But I, I felt like I wanted to at least mention that because I've not heard anybody else talk, not just about like the, the, the how saying that was unwise or whether he had a good political point about these ter- about these uh, excise taxes, I don't care about that. Right. Or and and, and that's or not, the constitutional point. And that's not the point he was making. Obviously, right? He wasn't saying he wasn't making an argument about the the scope right. of the proper scope of excise taxes. Right. And or the proper scope of excise taxes in the context of air travel. And for all I know, his prior is about that issue as a matter of policy could be spot on. I have no idea. But but you're right. He wasn't referring. That's not what he, he was wasn't saying. referring to those things, right. right? Yeah, and so taking his tweet at its words, which is an important thing to do. He's a public official. He's yeah. and he's making a claim about the way he's going to use his official power. Yeah, right? this is literally what he's doing in in this paragraph. So yeah, that people should take it seriously in its own terms. I think we should end it there. What do you think? Okay. Do you have anything else to say? No. Oh. <laughs> you said okay in a way that made me think maybe this time. There are two other things. So, so you you did post another piece on SSRN. I'm not including any show notes with this, so don't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna this like, is, push this it directly. Is, this is a, this is a few weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah, but we haven't we haven't talked about it. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about it. So I just wanted to make people aware. If you Google Joe Miller, is that enough, or do they have to say Joseph S. Miller? <laughs> they, Joe Miller. Someone who wants to find me on SSRN can find. They me. can find you, and you'll find a new paper there. I also uh, wrote on the blog uh, a piece about gun control, which um, tries to put into words some of the things you and I talked about uh, on that tug of war episode. I don't remember which episode it was. Like 100 or 101 or something something like that. that. I think it was 101, something like that, right? This Um, is the episode where we talked about this idea about liability to a fund. Yeah. Let me just say one thing about that because I've seen a lot of people talk in the the aftermath of, of this horrible shooting. It's a very good blog post, by the way. Oh, thank you. It has some errors in it and like it's not comprehensive and it doesn't deal with, well, it, it you can never say talk about like our response to Asher. Like you can never say everything, right? right? And so there's a bunch of stuff that I know that I would say. But um, uh, I've heard a lot of people say kind of reflexively like on Facebook or Twitter, like 
you know, gun ownership should be a little bit more like car ownership. You should have to carry insurance. You should have to pass a test. You should have to do all these things. These are, this is generally, I think, a, a pretty good argument, right? That they, you know, talk about bringing regular order to things, right? Um, insurance, though, is a concept which is built on top of there being a liability. There is no such thing as insurance without some liability. Fair enough. And so the policy discussion needs to be not over who needs to carry insurance, but what do they need to carry insurance for? In other words, where <laughs> what is the underlying liability? What is the underlying liability? That's the question because it's that person who is going to try to buy insurance and is going to try and is going to be subject both to trying to change their own behavior to minimize the, either the need for insurance or the cost of it, and subject to private regulation by the insurers. Right. Right. I but didn't you, get into that in the blog but the, post. The, but the way to yeah, the way to generate insurance policies is to not march around saying there should be insurance policies. Right. It's to talk about the liabilities, create those, and. People being people and money being money, someone will think about insurance right. and someone will like someone will think about wanting it and someone will think about providing but it. But I think they see these laws that that we have that say you have to carry like you know basic liability insurance for if you to operate a motor vehicle, right? But the reason you have to carry that is to ensure that you have some source of funds to pay the liability that yeah, you because have. Yeah, because the liability right? is there. The liability the law is there. Already. The law already right. provides for those things. If certain events take place, that liability will be brought to bear. And what we don't want to leave is people who have suffered an injury and who seek to get a compensation for that injury and find that the party who injured them has no means to pay them. Yeah. It's a protection against insolvency of people who have who should bear right. liabilities. Yeah. Right. So I, I just wanted to say that because I haven't seen you – know, and so, so the idea that you and I talked about and that it is in the blog post is this idea of a li- liability to a fund yes. with imagining that insurance and other schemes will follow. Indeed. Uh, okay. Is there anything else? It's gotten dark since we started recording. I, I've, I, there are many, many more things I would like oh to say. Gosh. So we're going to be going for at least another four hours. Oh, yeah, let's just, do it. I just want you to prepare. This is the podcast. So the podcasting format allows for that. I could push out a five-hour episode. You could. I could do that now. I, I, I could do that tonight. There's enough time. There's enough time. <laughs> but, you know, for this one, so this episode is going to be called Woodshed. Nice. I like it. I, there are going to be no show notes. Okay. I'm going to hit stop. I'm going to bounce it, as they say in the biz. Bounce it. I'm going to hit bounce. And then I'm going to log in to Fireside, our wonderful hosting solution. Nice. And hit the little publish button. Boom. Go for it. That's It's just going to go out. Do it. And we've got a great guest next week. Yep. When brought people... to us by listener Asher made the suggestion. That guy's gold. Bam. <laughs> All right, Joe. I'll see you next time.